Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In today's special update episode, we will discuss two cases that have had major revelations just this month. 34 years ago, the body of five-year-old Justin Turner was found inside of a small compartment within a camper owned by his father and stepmother. At the time, police theorized that the couple had both been involved in the child's murder and had attempted to throw investigators off their trail by staging the scene and reporting the child as missing. Justin's stepmother, Pamela, would be arrested and charged with murder, but those charges were later dropped due to a lack of evidence. For more than three decades, Justin's family have suffered with the anguish of his loss and the pain of watching those they believed responsible allowed to continue on with their lives without ever seeing the inside of a jail cell. Now, all of that has changed as just 10 days ago, Justin's father and stepmother were both arrested and charged with his murder. In addition to the announcement of these arrests, we'll look at the breaking news that a prime suspect has been identified in the murder of Dexter Stefanik. Dexter's car was found burning in a Montana rest area in November of 1985, and just months later, his body was recovered from a landfill not far away. For more than 40 years, the identity of Dexter's killer has remained unknown until now. The Dawson County Sheriff's Office has announced their belief that not only have they identified the killer, but also that he is currently behind bars for another homicide from 1979. This is Trace Evidence Special Update Episode, Justin Turner and Dexter Stefanik. Welcome to Trace Evidence. I'm your host, Stephen Pacheco. Today, we're going to examine two major updates, those being the identification of a suspect in the murder of Dexter Stefanik and the arrest of Justin Turner's father and stepmother for his murder. Originally, I had planned to do a new episode this week, but the overwhelming response I received after mentioning arrests in Justin's case made me flip the schedule as clearly a lot of you are invested in that horrible tragedy and you want to know what's going on. In addition, we'll be touching on a case I have not previously covered, that being the murder of Dexter Stefanik. Normally, I don't cover updates for cases I haven't worked on, but this one's a little different. I had recently begun the research stages of covering Dexter's case when this news broke, 
And so I wanted to share it with you as honestly, this was a case I never imagined being cracked. In one final quick note, I will once again be representing Trace Evidence on Podcast Row at CrimeCon this year, which is set to take place in Nashville, Tennessee, May 31st through June 2nd. CrimeCon is one of my favorite events to attend because it allows me to meet listeners, discuss cases, and get more informed about other cases. If you're planning to attend, please use promo code TRACE to save 10% on your pass. That's CrimeCon.com promo code TRACE to save 10%. I really look forward to seeing you there. Now, without further ado, we begin with the murder of Dexter Stefanik. In November of 1985, 67-year-old Dexter William Stefanik was set to embark upon a nearly 2,000-mile drive, which would carry him from his son David's farm in Corbett, Oregon, back to his home in Rhinelander, Wisconsin. Nearly one year prior, on Christmas Day of 1984, Dexter's beloved wife of 44 years, Vivian, had passed away while the couple were visiting that same farm. As the anniversary of his wife's death approached, Dexter became upset and informed his son that he planned to head home where he aimed to grieve his wife in private. Though his son attempted to talk him out of this, Dexter was determined, and on the morning of November 18, 1985, he climbed into his brown Plymouth Horizon and set out. This was a trip Dexter had made many times. And while David worried about his mental state and physical health at the time, Dexter had no hesitation. He even went so far as to inform his son that, wanting to get home as fast as possible, he had made no plans to stay in hotels and instead would pull into rest areas to catch a bit of sleep before going back onto the road. Unfortunately, Dexter would never make it back to his native Wisconsin. And less than 24 hours after he drove away from his son's farm, he would be killed. At approximately 10.20 a.m. on the morning of Tuesday, November 19th, a state employee called police to report a burning vehicle at the Bad Route Rest Area near Glendive, Montana, approximately 1,100 miles east of Corbett. When Dawson County Sheriff Jim George arrived at the scene, he noted that the vehicle was engulfed in flames and appeared to be the work of arson, as the interior was completely gutted, while the outside was little more than a scorched metal frame. A quick search of the license plate confirmed that the vehicle belonged to Dexter Stefanik. A massive search was launched at the time, under the assumption that Dexter may have experienced car trouble and wandered out into the bitter cold of that Montana winter, searching for assistance, but no trace of the elderly man was found. An arson investigation confirmed that gasoline had been used to burn the car, with the vast majority of it having been poured into the back seat. Further examination of the scene showed the confusing detail that the driver's seat was pushed all the way back, suggesting the vehicle had been driven by a tall person, which was odd since Dexter was known to be short. Now, Sheriff George theorized it appeared that Dexter may have fallen victim to a crime, and the man involved had taken him elsewhere before returning the vehicle back to the rest area, at which time it was set ablaze. At that time, Fred Siegel worked as a maintenance man at the Bad Route rest area, 
and he reported to police that approximately two hours before the car fire started, between 8 and 8.30 a.m., he spotted a pickup truck parked in the area where the car would later be found. Around 8.45 a.m., a Montana Highway Maintenance Supervisor, Clyde Mitchell, arrived at the rest area and also spotted the pickup truck, described as a white Chevy with an Arizona license plate, blue trim, and a cow catcher on the front. Mitchell left the rest area at approximately 9.15. 15 minutes after that, around 9.30, Fred Siegel was preparing to leave the rest area when he saw Dexter's brown Plymouth Horizon pull in, parking just in front of that white Chevy truck. An unidentified man emerged from the vehicle with two large plastic containers. When Fred asked if the man needed assistance, he stated that he was fine, that he had run out of gas, but now he had returned to fill up his vehicle. Siegel stated that the man stood approximately six feet tall, had a light complexion, was clean-shaven, and appeared to be between 35 and 40 years old. Siegel further stated that the man behaved normally. He didn't appear to be in a rush, nor did he seem like someone who was panicked or concerned about anything. He was very casual in both his manner of speaking and his behavior, and thinking nothing of it, Siegel continued on his way, driving out of the rest area. Less than 30 minutes later, Dexter's car would be discovered consumed by fire. It was assumed at the time that Dexter had likely been a victim of foul play, but he could not be located. Almost four months later, on Saturday, March 8, 1986, a local couple arrived at a small remote landfill approximately 18 miles from the rest area. The couple quickly discovered a wallet in good condition, which housed, among other items, the current license of Dexter Stefanik. Splitting up, the couple would find more items, namely a shaving kit, suitcase, and several pieces of men's clothing that appeared in good condition and certainly didn't look like the usual garbage found at the landfill. They then saw a man's foot sticking out from between some old mattresses and quickly notified authorities. The coroner positively identified the deceased man as Dexter Stefanik and confirmed the cause of death as homicide, noting that the victim had been shot twice in the back of the head with a large caliber pistol. The coroner also reported marks on Dexter's hands, damage to his throat and neck, and a bruise on the front of his head. It was theorized that Dexter had been beaten and possibly pistol-whipped before being shot. It was ultimately ruled that Dexter's body had been in the landfill since the day of the car fire, and when money was found amongst his belongings, the sheriff ruled out robbery as a likely motive. However, they faced the problem that they didn't have a suspect in the case, and the slim description of him that they possessed could fit almost anyone. The final clues in this case were discovered approximately one week after Dexter's body was found. Someone had written a few lines in pencil on the wall of the men's room at the Bad Route rest area. While the full message has not been revealed, police stated it began with the words, Hot Jock, and included some words that stood out to them as referencing Dexter's murder. Those words were, Wisconsin, Shot, and 1185 suggesting a man from Wisconsin was shot in November of 1985, which matched up extremely well. In an attempt to determine what led to Dexter's murder, 
Sheriff George attempted to reconstruct his final hours. It was theorized that Dexter arrived at the rest stop not long after 7 a.m. on November 19th and that his killer was likely already there. Dexter was hard of hearing, and investigators think the killer tried to get his attention, and when that failed, he became angry and pulled out a gun. He likely forced Dexter into the backseat of his own car, and either there, at the rest stop, or elsewhere along the route to the landfill, shot and killed him after a brief struggle. The killer then picked up gas, returned to the rest area, and set the car on fire before climbing into his Chevy truck and driving off into the unknown. This is how the investigation into the murder of Dexter Stefanik has remained for nearly 40 years. Until now. Case Update On Friday, January 19th, 2024, the Dawson County Sheriff's Office identified a man they believed to be the likely murderer of Dexter Stefanik. Charles Gary Sullivan, 79, was identified as a person of interest in the case, although investigators have stated he will not be officially charged with this crime. According to Dawson's County Sheriff Ross Kanan, Sullivan was identified as a likely suspect approximately two years ago. Sullivan is currently serving a sentence of 15 years to life in Nevada for the 1979 murder of 20-year-old Julia Woodward. Sullivan was linked to the case when his DNA was identified as being on the victim's clothing. Julia's body was found in a shallow grave in a remote area 15 miles north of Reno. She had been bludgeoned to death, her hands were bound, and adhesive was on her eyes. She was last seen alive in February of 1979 when she was at the San Francisco airport awaiting a flight to Reno. Sheriff Kanan reported that local authorities were directed towards Sullivan based on witness statements from 1985, which showed that his truck, license plate, traveling pattern, age, and physical description all matched what investigators had been told at the time. His criminal history also seemed to fall in line with this type of crime. Unfortunately, a lack of evidence makes it impossible for Sullivan to officially be charged with Dexter's murder, and when investigators went to speak to him in hopes of obtaining more information and evidence, he invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination and would not discuss the crime with them. According to Sheriff Kanan, while they would normally keep suspects' names private until such time that charges could be filed, this case garnered much national attention thanks to its airing on Unsolved Mysteries, and he felt it was appropriate to identify Sullivan as Dexter's likely killer in an attempt to bring peace and closure to not just the community, but also to Dexter's family. The Stefanik family supported this decision, writing a letter to the sheriff's office stating their belief that Sullivan killed Dexter and that they agree with the case officially being closed. While this does appear to bring answers, the horrible truth of that day can never be erased, and the Stefanik family will always mourn the loss of their father and grandfather. As for Sullivan, he may not yet be done with law enforcement, as there is the possibility he will be linked to other cases. Should those links be established, it's entirely possible that Sullivan will be identified as a serial killer who may have been active as long as 50 years ago with an unknown number of victims. 
only time will tell, and hopefully, Sullivan will never set foot outside of a prison. If you're listening to Trace Evidence, then I know you're a lover of mysteries, and I've got one you can't ignore because it'll pull you right in. Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Where will each new chapter take you? June's Journey is a thrilling mystery where you find hidden clues and uncover a murder mystery and solve mind-teasing mysteries of the Roaring Twenties as each chapter uncovers a collection of dazzling hidden object spectacles for you to solve. Dive into June's captivating quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret. Mystery, danger, and romance? Where will each new chapter take you? June's Journey stands out by offering unique gameplay and features. You can build your very own island estate with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. There's no urgency outside of your own desperate need to solve this mystery. You can dive all the way in or relax and lose yourself in this captivating quest of mystery, murder, and romance. June's Journey is the game you want to play, whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Episodes 170 and 171. The Murder of Justin Turner. On the morning of Friday, March 3rd, 1989, five-year-old Justin Turner was getting ready for school. Normally, Justin's stepmother, Pamela, would watch as he walked to the nearby bus stop to catch a ride to school, but this morning was different. Pamela would later state that she hadn't been feeling well and decided to take a shower around this time. At approximately 11 a.m., she claimed that Justin knocked on the bathroom door and announced that he was heading to the neighbor's house to wait for the bus. For whatever reason, Pamela didn't tell Justin to wait for her, nor did she exit the shower. Instead, she told the child to go on and have a good day. Justin lived with his stepmother, Pamela, and his father, Victor, in Monk's Corner, a small town in South Carolina's Berkeley County. 
The family home was located along Horseshoe Road, and the house was set away back from the road and was connected by a long dirt driveway listed as approximately 100 yards. Somehow, something went wrong that morning as according to friends, neighbors, the bus driver, and teachers, five-year-old Justin never made it to Whiteville Elementary School that day. At 3 p.m. when the bus returned, dropping children off after their day at school, five-year-old Justin was not among them. Reportedly, when Justin did not emerge from the bus, Pamela, then 29 years old, asked the driver where he was, at which time she was informed that the child had never gotten on the bus. She would later tell investigators that she made two calls immediately after learning that Justin was missing. First, she called the child's father, 34-year-old Victor Lee Buddy Turner, who was then working as a pipe welder for General Dynamics to inform him of the disappearance. Her second call was to the Berkeley County Sheriff's Office to report the child missing. Dispatch records confirmed this call from Pamela came into the sheriff's office at precisely 3.12 p.m. The first two deputies on the scene, according to sheriff's office records, were James Gathers and Philip Mason. According to the deputies, they conducted a search of the home and ground surrounding the house under the assumption that Justin had possibly decided to play hooky and skip out on school that morning. Among places searched included a camper, owned by Victor and kept not far from the family home. Deputy Mason would later write a report stating that they had performed two cursory searches of the camper that day, and while they didn't go digging into cupboards, they looked through and saw no signs that Justin had been in there. Witnesses present at the scene, namely Justin's paternal grandparents and a neighbor, would later tell authorities they saw the deputies searching the camper that day. When Justin could not be located, a massive search effort was organized. The Berkeley County Sheriff's Office called in assistance from local volunteers, firefighters, other law enforcement agencies in the area, as well as SLED, the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division. Searches were carried out over the course of the next 48 hours, and police canvassed the area interviewing neighbors and friends. They would ultimately learn that no one had seen Justin outside of his home that morning, and multiple people described him as a shy and reserved child who would be unlikely to go along with a stranger or to get into a vehicle with someone he did not recognize. Because of this and the remote location of the home, authorities initially theorized it was possible that Justin's biological mother, Elaine, might have been involved in the disappearance since there had been a lot of bad blood and disputes centering on custody and the prior divorce. As a result, neither Elaine nor any members of her family were allowed to assist in these searches. Sunday, March 5th, was set to be the largest of the searches to that point. More than 100 people assembled at the Turner home at approximately 7.45 a.m. After groups were organized and the search party properly advised on their areas of focus for the day, the vast majority of searchers headed out towards their assignments around 8 a.m. According to then-Sheriff M.C. Cannon, around 30 minutes later at approximately 8.30 a.m., Victor Turner walked towards the camper on his property, opened the door, and climbed inside. Moments later, local media captured the scene live on camera as Victor exited from the camper and explained, He's in there. My son is in there. At that point, 
Police closed off the scene and told the media to shut off their cameras as they entered the cabin and confirmed that the body of five-year-old Justin had been located. The discovery shocked police as the cabin had allegedly been searched multiple times in the preceding days. Ralph Hammer, captain of the Berkeley County Rescue Squad, described the scene to the Index Journal. Justin had been found beneath a bench seat in the dining area of the camper. Captain Hammer explained, quote, Underneath that top lid was a little sliding door, and he was underneath there. But it wasn't tight enough for him to suffocate, and it wasn't cold enough for him to freeze. It's just a mystery how he got in there. End quote. Justin's body was removed from the compartment and taken to Berkeley County Coroner William B. Smith Jr., who would conduct the autopsy. At this time, deputies from the sheriff's department were joined by eight members of SLED, four crime scene technicians, and four agents who were to assist in the collection of evidence. The camper was thoroughly searched, as well as photographed and dusted for prints. The Turner home was also subject to a search, and investigators went through it from top to bottom. Several items were removed from the home, later revealed in court documents to have been a dog leash, sheets, tissues, Justin's underwear, cereal, as well as hair and fibers. Many of these items were taken to the state lab in Columbia for analysis. On Monday, March 6th, Coroner Smith completed his report and released it to investigators. Perhaps the most pertinent question at the time, it was revealed that Justin's death had been ruled a homicide with the manner of death being stated as strangulation. According to the autopsy, the five-year-old had been strangled with a thin object at the time speculated to have been a small belt or perhaps a dog leash. Even more disturbingly, the report confirmed that Justin had been sexually assaulted as well. His body, at the time it was discovered, had been described in local newspapers as fully dressed. However, Sheriff Cannon stated after the release of the autopsy report that Justin's pants had been pulled down, described as being a third of the way down his legs. The forensic examination showed that the killer had inserted a cylindrical object into the child, though they could not confirm if this assault had taken place before or after his death. No semen was present, and further examination could find no injuries or signs that the child had been sexually assaulted previously, suggesting that this had been done around the time of his death and was not part of a longer history of abuse. While investigators have never named what type of object was used to assault the child, if indeed they know for certain, the two, which have most commonly been mentioned in leaks from those who alleged to be close to the case, were either a broom handle or perhaps a Coca-Cola bottle. At the time, the coroner had been unable to determine a time of death, which helped add much confusion to the case. Sheriff Cannon noted they needed to be able to narrow it down whether or not Justin had been killed the day he was reported missing and had possibly been in the camper the entire time, or if he had been killed after the searches had begun and someone managed to sneak him into the location where he was later found. Sheriff Cannon explained, quote, We simply don't have enough autopsy results to do something with. It was a sad and bad situation to start with, and then we've run aground with what they've got. That's a big issue. It's changed and twisted and bent 
So we just simply don't know. They've talked about 30 hours, then seven hours, then six hours. That's what's wrong now. End quote. One thing was clear to law enforcement, though. There was an extremely slim likelihood that a stranger had abducted the child, assaulted him, murdered him, and then later snuck him into that compartment in the camper. As a result, they started looking at Victor and Pamela with a lot more scrutiny. On Wednesday, March 8th, five days after Justin was reported missing, Victor and Pamela were brought down to SLED headquarters for questioning. Both were interviewed separately for approximately four hours apiece, and each was given a polygraph examination. The media went crazy for this and started writing a ton of articles about the likelihood that Justin had been killed by his father or stepmother, and the stories got to such an extreme that the sheriff's office issued a media blackout, saying that no one in law enforcement would speak to the media about the case again until they had a better grip on what was happening. Five months later, in August, a coroner's inquest was held before a six-person jury. The inquest quickly fell into chaos as both Victor and Pamela refused to answer questions, stating that they would not do so under the advice of legal counsel. They would instead stand by the statements they had previously made to SLED officers during the initial investigation. Ultimately, this first inquest would uncover little new information, if any, and it would be terminated when the coroner himself suffered a heart attack. A second inquest, held in December, kicked off with just as much disarray as neither Victor nor Pamela appeared, as they claimed to have not received notices to appear since they had recently moved out of Berkeley County. During this inquest, it was revealed that the polygraphs given to Victor and Pamela had been ruled inconclusive, not because of something wrong with the machines, but because it was determined both witnesses had taken sedatives prior to the tests in an attempt to skew the results. Following the complete inquest, the jury determined that a warrant should be issued for Pamela's arrest and that she should be charged with homicide. Arrested in mid-February of 1990, Pamela was charged with murder following a grand jury hearing in which they all came to the same conclusion as the jury in the coroner's second inquest. However, nine months later in November, all charges against Pamela were dropped. Prosecutors noted a lack of evidence and not wanting to risk the possibility of double jeopardy should Pamela be found not guilty at trial, they dropped all charges. A second grand jury held two years later in February of 92 failed to return any indictments. Prosecutors publicly stated that due to South Carolina law, they could not compel either Victor or Pamela to testify against one another due to spousal privilege, and they pointed towards this, as well as a lack of evidence, as the main reasons why they could not continue forward with the case. Over the course of the next three and a half decades, Justin's case would grow cold. Investigators revisited it, re-examined it, and re-interviewed witnesses, but they still lacked solid physical evidence to link either Victor or Pamela to the murder. It seemed clear the consensus among law enforcement officers was that one or both were likely responsible for the crime. They just couldn't find what they needed to make an arrest and move forward with prosecution. However, just two weeks ago, in early January of 2024, all of that would change when Sheriff Dwayne Lewis held a press conference 
and made a shocking announcement. Case update. On Wednesday, January 10th, 2024, Berkeley County Sheriff Dwayne Lewis announced at a press conference that Justin's father, Victor Lee Turner, now 69, and his wife, Megan R. Turner, 63, had been arrested and charged with murder in Justin's case 34 years after the crime was committed. It was noted that Megan Turner is in fact the same person as Pamela Turner, Justin's stepmother, and that in the years after the crime, she had legally changed her name. Not long after the murder, Victor and Pamela moved approximately three hours northwest from Monk's Corner, settling in the small town of Cross Hill, located in Lawrence County in South Carolina's upstate. They are still married and were arrested together without incident on Tuesday, January 9th. I will now play audio from the press conference with Sheriff Lewis announcing the arrest and discussing how long they have waited to bring justice for the murdered five-year-old. I apologize for some thumping sounds during this audio, but Sheriff Lewis has a habit of banging his hand on the podium while speaking. Uh, Yesterday, January 9th at 10 a.m., detectives from the Berkeley County Sheriff's Office uh, was able to arrest and take into custody Victor Lee Turner and Pamela Turner, also known as Megan Turner. Uh, They were taken into custody at their home, which is located in Cross Hill, South Carolina, which is in Lawrence (coughs) County. Lawrence County Sheriff's Office assisted us with the arrest. Uh, They have been transported back to the Berkeley County Jail. They are incarcerated at this time. This is a, a, an amazing day. It's a, a day that um, a lot of people that have since left us have been waiting for, and a lot of people that are here today. 34 years ago, that's a long time. In an affidavit filed to obtain the arrest warrant, investigators revealed several details of the case and included information that led them to believe that both Victor and Pamela were not only involved in Justin's murder, but that the two had conspired together to deliver false and misleading information to investigators in hopes of steering the investigation away from themselves. Directly addressing the fact that Justin's body was found in the camper, owned by his father and stepmother, to which only they had the keys, and that he was found by his father after previous searches, the affidavit discusses the suspect's connection to the camper and the discovery of Justin's body. It reads in part, quote, The specific location inside the camper where the body was concealed by the offender highly suggests familiarity with the camper and its floor plan. Defendant and co-defendant are the only persons with access to the camper, both having possession of the only keys to the lock securing the camper door, which was located on their respective key rings. End quote. The arrest warrant specifies that investigators believe Victor and Pamela murdered Justin and then, after police had already searched, hid the child's body in the camper so that Victor could discover it in the presence of law enforcement in the hopes of appearing free of guilt in the crime. The warrant continues, quote, Defendants' deliberate actions and obvious behavior of both defendants reveal and are highly suggestive that the defendant and co-defendant knew exactly where the victim was located, 
hidden inside of the camper before the defendant's feigned search and discovery of the victim. Rather than react to finding his son and personally checking for any indication of life whatsoever, the defendant instead backed out of the camper, commenting, he's in there, my son is in there, somebody's hurt him. The defendant later told investigators, quote, he looked dead. I could feel that something was wrong with him. I did not touch him, end quote. The warrant goes on to note that Justin was strangled with a ligature on or about the early morning hours of March 3rd, 1989. This finding is based on new information following the use of modern technology and approaches to analyze the content of the child's stomach, which showed partially digested food matching up with what the family had had for dinner the night prior to Justin being reported missing. This would suggest that Justin could have been killed as early as the night before police were called to the scene to begin their missing persons investigation. Previously, analysis of Justin's stomach contents was unable to lock in an exact or specific time range. At the time, it had been reported that Justin had gone missing after getting on the school bus, but that was proven false even back during the original investigation. Here is a clip of Sheriff Lewis discussing this during the press conference. He's five years old at the time. Justin never made it to school that morning. He never got on the bus. He never arrived at school. That's because he had been murdered. And he'd been murdered by his stepmother and his father and left in a camper behind their house. I can't think of a more tragic, horrendous murder. Five-year-old boy. Going back to Justin. Today, Justin would have been 40 years old. Could have graduated high school, went to college, got married, had a child, been a productive citizen. But he wasn't. Because we believe these two people took that away from all of us and this family, who I have been in contact with over the years. And they have been tremendous in their efforts to keep this case alive and keep pushing us and asking questions and and helping us get where we are today. You know, initially they provided information um, that, you know, he didn't get on the, he, that he got on the school bus and went to school but never got off of the bus. That was not true. He never got on that bus. He never got on that bus because he was dead inside that house. So there's been a lot of different things and statements made. Um, when you when you look at the scene, you can you can assume by looking at it that it was somewhat a staged scene, scene to make it look like something that it wasn't. And um, all that'll come out. We'll, we'll get to all that. But there's a lot of inconsistencies in the story and the information in what the deputies, detectives, and sled agents, DNR agents were told when they first got there to try to piece the thing together. 
Court documents go on to state that while Pamela claimed to have not seen Justin leaving for the bus that morning because she was in the shower, multiple neighbors told police that she had informed them that she'd had an argument with the five-year-old that morning in the home prior to the last time she claims to have seen him alive. The document continues, quote, She provided misinformation to investigators about her specific whereabouts on the morning of Friday, March 3rd, 1989, and provided inconsistent information about her activities. End quote. The arrest warrant goes on to note that during the second day of the search, Victor found Justin's body inside the camper, but they could not rationalize why he had decided to search it that morning since it had been previously searched. In addition, they note the nonchalant manner in which Victor announced the discovery of his son's body, not as a father heartbroken and caught up in the midst of pain, grief, and anger, but as a casual observer. The warrant also points out that Victor found the body, quote, within seconds of entering the camper and moments after the search party began its search, end quote. It is the belief of investigators that both Victor and Pamela knew exactly where Justin's body was and that Victor went straight to it, not searching any other parts of the camper. At the time of the discovery, a local news crew had their cameras rolling, and I'll now play the short clip for you of Justin's father announcing the discovery of his five-year-old son's body. I will loop it so that you can hear the short clip several times in a row. My son's in there. My son's in there. In the show notes, I'll provide a link to the YouTube video posted by WCBD News 2, which shows this as well as additional coverage of that day where you can see Victor, a father allegedly in the throes of grief as he fails to shed a single tear while cupping his hands over his face and pretending to be crying. In addition, You can watch as he half-heartedly taps his fist down gently on the porch, apparently so overwhelmed by emotion as to lash out extremely calmly, slowly, and nonchalantly. The warrant goes on to note that upon the discovery of his son, Victor makes no efforts to try and reach him nor to perform any life-saving measures. It reads, quote, Rather than react to finding his son and personally checking for any indication of life whatsoever, Victor Turner instead backed out of the camper, commenting, he's in there, my son's in there. The warrant adds that Victor, quote, later told investigators he looked dead. I could feel something was wrong with him. I did not touch him, end quote. In perhaps one of the most revealing pieces of information, the warrant also notes that not long before entering the camper, Victor had asked a law enforcement official present that day If someone, possibly a family member, had, quote, done harm to the victim, such as killed him, end quote, what would happen to that person? The warrant continues, quote, Within this transparent question, an apparent awareness of the victim's fate was revealed prior to the discovery of the victim's body. Victor Turner had made other comments to suggest that he had knowledge of the boy's fate prior to the discovery of his body, end quote. In addition to this, a forensic analysis of items collected from the scene of the crime that day, including what is believed to have been the murder weapon, were able to be conclusively linked to Justin by way of clothing fibers found on the alleged murder weapon. 
Here is Sheriff Lewis discussing both the statements made by the suspects that day, as well as forensic evidence in the press conference. Statements that were made during the initial uh, interview, initial on-scene investigation, all of those things. But we were able to to use uh, some forensic testing that we had not had available to us before. And that enabled us to tie in the murder weapon that we believe was used to strangle Justin to uh, clothing and, and, and fabric on his clothing at the time of his death. Um, there's a lot of other things that account for it, but that's just a couple of things. The warrant goes on to allege that after police informed them of the discovery of physical evidence, namely the alleged murder weapon, that both Victor and Megan, quote, expressed concern and devised a plan to withhold slash conceal potential evidence, end quote. Both of them are alleged to have given, quote, spontaneous incriminating statements to indicate responsibility in the death and intent to conceal physical evidence from investigators at the start of the investigation, end quote. Sheriff Lewis stated that this was a case which had haunted not only Justin's family, but many of the officers who had originally worked the case. He noted that multiple sheriffs prior to him had wanted desperately to solve the case, but that in the end, the technology did not exist at the time to provide the answers necessary. He also talked of Justin's biological mother, who sadly did not live to see the day her son's killers were arrested. Here is Sheriff Lewis talking about the passage of time and their hunt for justice. So um, I know Sheriff MC Cannon, his, his team worked very hard on it. Um, Sheriff Isget uh, also had, you know, and I'm going through the sheriffs um, as I knew them. Um, I think at one point, even Scotland Yard was involved in this case. And, and had had examined it. Um, when uh, Sheriff DeWitt came in, um, I think John worked on it some then while um, Sheriff DeWitt was here. And again, it's been renewed and, and, and people were, we've always been doing what we, the very best we could do based on the evidence and the technology and the forensic that we had. Um, so, it's just, thank the good Lord, we got to a place where we were able to get enough to, to uh, make an arrest. Well, uh, you know, I've talked to everybody that's still around, and, and, and I'm so sorry that Justin's real mother is not here. She suffered tremendously. And um, so have a lot of people. I mean, there's some deputies that, that were here that, that went to the scene. Um, everybody kind of felt it. It was, it was a tragedy. And um, I'm just hoping that we can move forward and, and, and that we have done the very best that we can to our ability to, to solve this case and, and help this family. And really, 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 at the end of the day, give Justin some justice. According to Sheriff Lewis, the case had been looked at many times over the years, but it was in 2021 when the cold case unit was able to submit evidence for testing with new technology that they were able to make some breakthroughs. In addition, detectives with the cold case unit pinpointed multiple inconsistencies 
which led them to believe that the crime scene and discovery of Justin's body had all been staged. Asked about Victor and Pamela, Sheriff Lewis acknowledged that investigators at the time believed they had been involved in the murder, but they didn't possess the evidence they needed to go forward with it. He mentioned that Pamela had previously been arrested and, despite the charges being dropped, she remained one of their prime suspects. He also noted that in the 34 years that passed, neither Victor nor Pamela ever reached out with any concern about the investigation or the fate of the child. Here is Sheriff Lewis discussing the evolution of the case and his father and stepmother's seeming indifference, which did little to show any possibility of innocence when it came to the murder of Justin Turner. Yeah, so um, if you look at the overall, they, uh, Pamela was arrested at one point and charged. case was dismissed um, without prejudice, so it would enable us to come back again if, if, if we had enough evidence. Um, she changed her name. They moved to the upstate, and nobody um, that I'm aware of from any of the family has ever heard from them again. Isn't that strange? I never got one phone call. One phone call from his daddy or his stepmother. What are y'all doing about my son's death? Not one. What does that tell you? Following their arrests, Victor and Pamela were transported from their home in Lawrence County back to Berkeley County. It was hoped that, along the three-and-a-half-hour car ride, they might be willing to share some information but both remained silent. Victor and Pamela attended a bond hearing virtually with Magistrate Judge Brian West later on Wednesday, January 10th. As a magistrate judge, West does not have the authority to set bail on charges such as murder. Instead, the couple will be placed on the circuit board docket sometime within the next 30 days, at which time a circuit judge will possess the ability to set their bond. Magistrate Judge West informed Victor and Pamela that a murder charge, which both have received, can carry a sentence of up to life imprisonment. During this hearing, family members were allowed to address the Turners for the first time since they were arrested. Amy Parsons, Justin's cousin, spoke for the family, saying, quote, For 35 years, you have enjoyed your freedom. You do not deserve one day outside of those prison walls for what you did to Justin. You were supposed to take care of him, love him, and instead you tortured, abused, and murdered him, your child. It takes a sick individual to do what you did, end quote. At the time, it did not appear as though the Turners had legal representation. Their former defense lawyer retired in 2016 and informed the media that he no longer represented his previous clients. However, Public record searches show that both have since hired lawyers, and at least for the moment, it's worth noting that they appear to have employed separate attorneys. Obviously, this is a still-developing case, and there will come a lot more information in the future. I'll keep you up to date as best I can, and when there is additional news, I'll put together another update. Nothing can ever bring Justin back, nor assuage the grief and pain suffered by friends with the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Family over the course of these past 34 years. Justin was robbed of a life, and those who loved him were robbed of their opportunities to grow with him, experience life with him, and to share in treasured memories. Justin's mother passed before she could see justice done, but the family remains dedicated to Justin and the cause she fought so valiantly for. We will end with the words of Amy Parsons, who expressed both gratitude and grief at the press conference when she addressed the media. Here is Amy. I'm Amy Parsons. I am Justin's cousin. Of course, I was only eight at the time of his murder. Um, I want to thank God first for getting us to this point and Sheriff Lewis for listening to our cries. From here, all we want is justice, and I want to see our justice system do what it was intended to do and put these two people where they deserve to be because they've walked for 34 years. They've had freedom for 34 years while our family has suffered and they don't deserve another day from behind those bars. And I want to thank everybody that has put time in to get us to where we are here. And once again, Sheriff Lewis, I really, truly, we all appreciate what you have done for our family. Thank you. So there you have it, two cold cases with major breakthroughs. One case in regard to Dexter Stefanik has officially been closed, while Victor and Pamela Turner have been arrested and charged with five-year-old Justin's murder. If you're looking for more information about the murder of Dexter Stefanik, Unsolved Mysteries did a segment on his case, and Robin Warder covered it on an episode of The Trail Went Cold. If you're looking for more information about the murder of Justin Turner, there are many news sites and articles discussing his case. I did two episodes about Justin's case, those being 170 and 171, which I definitely recommend if you want to hear everything there is to know at this point in time. If you have any information about the murder of Dexter Stefanik, Julia Woodward, or anyone else who may have been killed or harmed by Charles Gary Sullivan, please contact the FBI at 702 702- 385-1281. You can also submit tips on their website at tips.fbi.gov. If you have any information about the murder of Justin Turner, please contact the Berkeley County Sheriff's Office at 843-719-4465.
Just a quick reminder, if you're planning to attend CrimeCon this year in Nashville from May 31st through June 2nd, use promo code TRACE at CrimeCon.com to save 10% on your pass. That's promo code TRACE at CrimeCon.com. Now, I'd like to take a moment to thank our amazing Patreon producers, without whom Trace Evidence would not be possible. A massive thank you to Andrew Guarino, Anne M. Bertram, Camelia Tyler, Christine Greco, Danny Renee, Denise Dingsdale, Desiree Lauro, Donna Buttram, Diani Dyson, Jennifer Winkler, Justin Snyder, Kara Moreland, K.Y., Lars Jensen Fangel, Leslie B., Lisa Hobson, Madison LeHoulier. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Melissa Brekhuizen, Nick Mohar Schurz, Roberta Janssen, Ruth, Stacey Finnegan, Stephanie Joyner, Tom Radford, and Wend Organ. I want to thank you all so much for your support. It means the world to me, and you are truly the lifeblood of this podcast. If you're interested in supporting the show and listening to your episodes ad-free, please visit patreon.com slash traceevidence or click the support option on the official website at trace-evidence.com. For now, this concludes this update episode. Hopefully, sooner than later, we'll get some solid developments and learn the fate of Victor and Pamela, which I hope is extremely unhappy and uncomfortable. For 34 years, they got to continue on with life, a life they stole from an innocent five-year-old boy. I can't begin to wrap my head around such atrocious and monstrous people. Thankfully, as technology keeps evolving, we continue to see these horrible murderers caught And this is a great start to 2024. So thank you all again for listening to this update. And next week, we'll be on to a new unsolved case with the next episode of Trace Evidence.